Well, I wonder how often do you stop in the busyness of your life to just take stock of your own heart, to, to reflect upon who you are, not, not the outward shell that everyone sees, not the Instagram version of yourself where you appear to have mastered sin and have no real issues, but the you in your heart where sin is still bubbling up where the the praise of man is more valued and cherished than the future praise of God, where immediate fleeting gratification and pleasure are more desired than eternal joy. Do you ever stop to think that even if you have been a Christian for 40 years, you have not yet been removed from the presence of sin? Yes, you fight it. Yes, you you pray for strength to kill it. Yes, you desire to mortify that sin in your life. Yes, you want to be like Jesus. And even while all those, those thoughts are fighting to be in the front of your mind, there are days, and maybe not even days, but minutes, seconds, a moment where where the sin in you finds a stronghold and conquers you. And it claims victory. And there you lie on the battlefield of that encounter, beaten, ashamed, and bloodied. And as you look up from the dust you're lying on, you realize that the blood on you that you see is actually not yours. Because where you have fallen was not in an empty field to be brutally ravaged by the remaining sin and by the hounds of hell, but you have fallen at the foot of the cross. And so you look up and you see Jesus there and it's his blood that has fallen on you. And on the nails in his hands and on his feet, it is written, Michael's sin. And how that makes you feel even worse. But above his head, there is a sign. A sign. And in in big, bold, beautiful letters, it says, forgiven. Forgiven. And as you lie there, having lost the battle to sin, looking at that sign that says forgiven, you can't help but ask yourself, why? Why did you do it, Lord? You know my heart better than anyone else. You know what a sinner I am. Why did you take my sin on you? Why did you die in my place? You know I'm going to fail. I don't want to, but I cave. I give in. Why is there still forgiveness? Surely I've reached the point where you just wash your hands of me and say, I'm done with you. And yet amidst your lowly position of defeat, forgiveness continues to flow over you like an eternal spring. And as you rise, you stand to the tune of Ephesians 1, 4 to 7. He chose us in him, that is in Christ, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely You want a word for the day? There's your word, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. The choosing, the loving, the adoption, the redemption, the forgiveness was all to the praise of his glorious grace. If you ever come to the cross thinking that you should be forgiven because you are basically a nice person, because you've done a certain amount of good things that you are somehow owed forgiveness, you will find that it is nowhere to be seen. But to the one who sees his sin, who who sees her sin, who is distraught over it, sickened by it, hates it and cries out, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be forgiven. My only hope is Christ. Grace and forgiveness will pour like a hurricane where you lie. I speak this to you who are believers to remind you not to think of yourself as greater than you are. Not to think of yourself as you're just a couple steps behind Jesus. I know Jesus is sinless, and I'm not saying that I am, but you know, if I reach out my hand, I can touch his shoulder. That's about how close I am. While the Christian life is one of sanctification, the the Holy Spirit working in you to make us more like Jesus, and while the longer we are a Christian, the further along in our walk we should be, make no mistake, the moment you wake up in the morning, you are at war with sin. There will be days you are victorious by the power of Christ, and there will be days that you fall. And so you are still, even at this moment, in need of forgiveness. You are still at this moment in need of the cross. And so don't forget that. You deserved punishment. You deserved hell. Yet Christ took it on himself so that you would be forgiven. If you are here and are not a Christian, this is what you need. This is what you need. You are a sinner just like everyone else in this room. You need forgiveness. You have lived in such a way that belittles God and that demeans his glory. And I know this because this is what sin does. That happens every time we fail. Every time we sin, we belittle God and we demean his glory. Forgiveness does not come by earning it. It doesn't come by paying for it. It doesn't come by even participating in religious activities or rituals. It comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment of our sins so that we might be forgiven. You must believe, you must trust in him. 
And then, and, and only then, will these be some of the sweetest words that you have ever heard in your life. When the God whom you have offended looks at you and says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or again in Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity, their trespasses, their, their, their rebellion, their hatred of me, their loving of other things more than me, their sin, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Do those words tear at your heart? How could they not? If they don't, it's because you don't understand how horrible sin is, how it dwells in each of our hearts, how hell-deserving you are. Only then to hear the Lord say, I will remember your sins no more, will it be to you like an ocean of crystal clear water to the tired, sun-beaten man in the desert. Do you stop in the busyness of your life to just take stock of your own heart, to reflect upon who you are, to just pause for one minute out of a year to ponder the awesome reality that if you have trusted in Jesus, truly you have been forgiven. If you have no other reason to sing loudly these songs that we sing on a Sunday morning, this is a great reason. If you feel that forgiveness, how can you not want to sing the loudest in, in singing, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Or to sing this, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy, unworthy, Christ in love redeemed me for his own. Or this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What, what redeemed sinner can let these words just fall from their mouth as if they were semantically empty and just put to a tune for its own sake instead of having a glorious, grace-filled reality standing behind it. My sinful soul is counted free. Why? Because God the just is satisfied to look on him, on Christ, the one who hangs above you on a cross as you lie prostrate, having been conquered by sin, whose spilled blood covers you, he is satisfied to look on him and pardon me.
take a second right now and dwell on that. As a Christian, you stand guilt-free and blameless before the king of the universe because you have been pardoned. You've been forgiven because Jesus took your punishment. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian right now, say to the Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to be forgiven. I am trusting in Jesus that he died for my sins. Help me to believe. Do these thoughts not grip your heart? Believe it or not, this is not the main point of the sermon today. These are the waters that we need to soak in for a bit in order to, for us to, to feel the, the, the impact of the main point of the sermon this morning. Because the question we ought to ask is, what does this mean now for us as to how we ought to live? How we interact with each other in this church? how we interact with family and friends, how we interact with people who, who treat you poorly and, and hate you and, and bring all manner of evil against you. The main point of this morning's sermon really comes from two, uh, two texts. The first is Ephesians 4.32 and, and then second, Matthew 6.14-15. So let me read to you Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, our ability to forgive others is grounded in the fact that we have been forgiven. The forgiveness you have received because of what Christ has done for you does not end with you. That reality now undergirds your forgiveness of others. What we have received, we in turn grant to others. If you don't, if you live with an unforgiving spirit, if you, if you hold grudges, then either the incredible reality of your own forgiveness has not sunk down into your heart, or God is not really in your life. And if God is not in your life, then you are not forgiven. Therefore, having a forgiving heart is of eternal importance. Jesus himself makes this incredibly clear in the second verse I want us to look at, which is Matthew 6, 14 to 15. These verses come at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. And so I want to give you the whole context here. So I'll read from Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. And there Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." Do you feel the weight of those last two verses? If you forgive others their trespasses, their, their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You know what that means? 
If you are, forgi- if you are forgiven, it, it means you're, you're justified. It means your sins will not be held against you. It means you'll be welcomed into the presence of the Lord with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, reap your reward of eternal joy in my presence. That's what it means. You forgive others their trespasses. Your heavenly father will also forgive you. That's what you get. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, their sins, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. There are many scary verses in the Bible. This is one of them. If you hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, you get no reward. If you continue on with such a heart, you lose eternal joy and you gain hell. Because those who stand before the throne of God basking in the warmth of his glory are people who are forgiven and forgiving right? That's what the text says. Jesus will again reiterate this point in Matthew 18. In verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus and he asks, Jesus, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times, right? Seven times, that's, that's a pretty good. And after that, you know, I'm not bound to forgive anymore, right? Because forgiving is tiring. Why do I always have to forgive them? Is it seven times? And what's Jesus' response? I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or your translation might say something like 70 times seven times. But in either case, the point is not that there is an actual number that once I reach there, I don't have to forgive anymore. But rather, as Nolan has said, quote, the number is designed to break through any notion that there are limits to forgiveness. One is to keep on forgiving far beyond the point where one has lost count of the wrongs. And then from that question, Jesus immediately then moves into this this parable about what the kingdom of heaven might be compared to. And he says that, that a king decided to settle accounts with his servants. And so one of the servants was brought before him and this servant owed him 10,000 talents. To give you an idea how much this is, Josephus notes that the total Judean tax for one year was just 600 talents. Nolan notes again that 10,000 talents would pro- would pay for something like 200,000 man years of labor. This was an exorbitant amount of money that this servant could never pay back. And yet the king forgave him the debt. A, A burden like that amount of debt just vanished. And so in light of this grand gesture of forgiveness, what does the servant go do? Well, he finds another servant, a fellow servant, who owes him a minuscule amount compared to what he owed the king. And he demands he pays it back right now, and he doesn't, and so he begins choking him. And when word gets to the king of what happened, he calls the servant to appear before him. And the king says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, you have been forgiven to forgive. A characterizing mark of those who belong to God's kingdom is forgiveness. Why? Why? Because he, the king, is forgiving. 
Now I know that many of you here have been sinned against greatly. And so I want you to realize that forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, does not mean that you just pretend like nothing happened. That's not it at all. Let me give you a few things that forgiveness is not, and then we'll look at what true forgiveness is. First, it is not pretending like everything is now okay. When someone sins against you, you will be hurt. But forgiveness doesn't allow that hurt to become anger. And it doesn't cling to that hurt. Brad Hambrick writes this, quote, Forgiveness is what allows us to express hurt as hurt rather than hurt as anger. Second, forgiveness does not mean that there are not consequences. Sin has consequences. Those consequences might be a, a broken relationship that now must be mended slowly over many years. It might be prison. It might be death. In 2015, Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, murdered nine people in a black church in South Carolina in the U.S., and at the trial, family members of those who were slain were there and were given an opportunity to speak. And out of their pain and sorrow, many stood up in that courtroom to the man who murdered their family and said, I forgive you. I pray for your soul. That's amazing. That is amazing. But it doesn't mean that they don't want charges brought, not at all. In, in fact, he was found guilty and given the death sentence. Forgiveness does not end consequences. Third, forgiveness does not mean that trust is automatically restored. The hurt, the consequences may be so severe that it may take years to regain trust. Forgiveness is not living naively about what has happened. So what then is forgiveness? Well, I think a helpful definition is given by Thomas Watson, an, an old Puritan from the 17th century, in his work on the Lord's Prayer. Watson asks this question. He says, when do we forgive others? Now, he's not asking about when is it appropriate to forgive, but rather, how do we know that forgiveness has taken place? How do we know that we have truly forgiven? And so here's his answer. He says, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies harm, but wish them well, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, this is gospel forgiving. Did you hear that? Did you hear what true biblical gospel forgiveness entails? There were seven elements he listed there. We strive against all thoughts of revenge. It's not up to you to get payback. It's not up to you to bring about justice. And notice Watson didn't say don't seek revenge. We're not supposed to seek revenge. But that's not what he said. He said rather strive against all thoughts of revenge. This is a hard issue. This is a heart issue. Even in your heart, in your mind, you are not planning evil against them. Paul writes in Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Not only do we not seek revenge, 
but we will not do our enemies harm. Just two verses later, from what Paul wrote in Romans 12, in 12:21, Paul writes this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. And if that were it, we might think, okay, no problem. You know, I'll just refrain from interacting or doing anything with, with that person. But Watson doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with these negative actions. He then goes on to give positive actions. He says, we must wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. You don't want to wish them well? Jesus says, bless those that curse you. You don't want to pray for them? Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here are, are things that only a heart that has truly forgiven can do. Here are things that only a heart that has been eternally forgiven can do. But what if the person who has sinned against you doesn't know they've sinned against you and so doesn't seek your forgiveness and they don't want to? Must you still forgive them? The answer is yes, but not in the same way. It won't be the fullest experience of that forgiveness which is had when the offending party comes to the person and repents and seeks forgiveness, recognizes their, their error. Jesus says in Luke 17, three to four, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And in that is the fullest expression of forgiveness. But if they don't, your heart is still one of forgiveness. Again, Jesus says in Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. That almost sums up Watson's definition of forgiveness. What God's word calls us to be is a radically forgiving people because we were first radically forgiven so that when someone here in this very room sins against you your heart which is rejoicing in your own forgiven state is ready and primed to forgive when someone in town cuts you off and then swears at you your desire is for their good when the Nazi guard of the concentra concentration camp you were in and where you watched numerous Jews and non-Jews be killed comes to you and says he's sorry, your response is, I forgive you and you mean it. Could you do that? Is God's forgiveness of your sins such an awesome reality in your life that your heart is ready to forgive and your mouth is able to tell the man who participated in the murder of countless lives, including your own family, and who made you suffer, that you forgive them. Could you do that? In 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands. Dutch Jews were being rounded up 
and sent to death camps. Many Gentiles risked their lives to hide their Jewish neighbors and try to protect them. Two of these Gentiles were two sisters, Christians, Corey and Betsy Tenboom. Unfortunately, they were betrayed by a Dutch informant and the Gestapo arrested them and they were taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Somehow, they managed to smuggle in a Bible and would hold worship services at night. Betsy sadly died there late that year in 1944. The rest of the ladies in that group were killed in the gas chambers. However, a seemingly clerical error resulted in Corey being released right before all the ladies were killed. In 1947, she went back to Germany and spoke about forgiveness at a church in Munich. So I want to do is I want to give you her words as she recounts this story. She says, quote, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from Holland's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. If we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform, and a visored cap with the skull and crossbones. And it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who spoke so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had 
every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, being, bringing me to tears. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That is what we are to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask the impossible. We ask the impossible because we have received the impossible. To live a life that is an affront against you, to daily sin against you, and yet to know we have been forgiven? Even that thought alone should melt a cold heart. And so when we ask the impossible, Lord, we, we are asking that you would make us people who are willing to forgive that we would not consider ourselves to be the demigods who have been affronted in this life, but to see that we were those who were in need of forgiveness and that forgiveness flows out from us to forgive those around us. Help us to be like this. Help us to feel the weight of these words that Jesus says if we don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will our Father forgive us. Let that terrify us to our souls. May we be prepared and ready to forgive. 
just as you are ready to forgive us. And how I pray, Lord, that if there's any here that hasn't experienced that forgiveness, Lord, touch their hearts, grip them, help them to call out even now how much they need you, how much they need Christ, the one who has purchased their forgiveness by his own death. And help us to be prepared, Lord, to to stand before anyone who has injured us, done us wrong, sinned against us. Especially if they have said they have become a Christian, they now believe, they want to be forgiven, that we would be able to say, I forgive you with all my heart. Help us to be this kind of people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing one more song, which is Before the Throne of God Above. Let's stand and sing.